0: Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey,
1: Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're tuning in for the first time, the Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent and are uniquely talented themselves. So in this show, we talk about talent in those two ways. First, as it relates to uh, success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people. And second, we talk about talent in relation to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today. Hopefully you see how that works. The word talent has a couple different meanings in the business world, and this show really looks to explore those two areas the best we can. My guests typically include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives, authors, coaches, all sorts of great people from all different types of industries. And generally what happens is that when I'm out at networking events or industry conferences, I have the privilege of meeting some inspiring leaders, credible guests, and uh, thought leaders all the time. So I created this forum to allow you to listen in our dialogue and hopefully learn some practical advice that will impact your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my guest today, I want to thank those of you tuning in live. We've been off for two weeks. Uh, Well, I had a little vacation. We... Gave our producer a little time off to to see his grandkid. And uh, hopefully we uh, can get back in the swing of it here without too much trouble. So thank you, those of you who come back live after the little bit of a break. So don't forget, that you can also submit your questions via Twitter. Just tweet them right now to at PeopleG2. Use that hashtag talent talk, all one word. And my producer, Mike, will feed me the best questions, and we'll try to work them into the show. Don't forget, you can also listen to this show via our podcast on iTunes or Android, wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to have the weekly show sent to you with over 27,000 listeners of our podcast already listening. We really appreciate your, your support. And it's generally how most people interact with us is catching the podcast when it's convenient for them. With that said, let's get today's show started. My guests today are Thomas Massey, President and CEO of Bridgeline Digital, and Shirley Davis, President and CEO of SDS Global Enterprises. Shirley will be joining me uh, later in the show, so now let's get to our first guest, Thomas Massey. Thomas, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, Chris. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
1: It's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, of course, your company, Bridgeline Digital.
2: I am a uh, very Ardent entrepreneur. I love building companies from business plan to uh, larger scale. Done it multiple times. Had a company in the late 80s that I built up from zero to 50 million dollars, named Mass Microsystems. Then I did that again with another company named Focus. I sat on the board of directors of a company called Map Info that we grew from 50 million to about uh, 200 million. And I started Bridgeline about 14 years ago. Well, first of all, if you ever research uh, the name, you know what is a Bridgeline. If you look up an anatomy of a spider. Web, you'll find out that a bridge line is the first thread of a spider's web, and the strength of that spider's web is determined by the strength or weakness of that bridge line, and that's hence the name. Uh, we're a, a web-based digital engagement company. We've developed a SaaS-based platform called IAPS. And iApps deeply integrates web content management, e-commerce, e-marketing, social media management, and analytics all into one unified platform. And then we develop these big web stores and mission-critical websites around our platform, creating a very highly scalable recurring revenue model. We've been in business for 14 years. We have 10 offices across the country, an office in Bangalore, India, and uh, just a, a blue-chip customer base with companies like Twitter and Triumph Motorcycle, GE, UPS Store, L'Oreal, folks like that. So have a lot of fun and uh, really enjoying uh, growing the company.
1: The average client that comes to you, what kind of problem are you really solving for them or you know, how are you really driving the, the value to them ultimately?
2: We understand today on how critical, strong, valuable websites or web stores are to our business, and we're typically a, a middle market company. But the problems that we solve is, you know, the true digital engagement with that B two B customer or that B two C customer that our client base is striving to have. The combination of our platform, our software, and our services drive true digital engagement. We're able to do things like persuasive content and, you know, create higher conversions and increased lift. And what I like to say to customers is that we really drive that that CMO awareness. So our customer typically is on the marketing side of the house, and the smarter we can make our customers to take actions with their web properties, the better they're going to do as a company. So. Our platforms are all about making our customers smarter, more intelligent about who they're engaging and how to increase lift and and conversion. We're very passionate and very focused on that.
1: The Bridgeline example that you gave is certainly a probably a very important part of, of the strategy that your clients are putting forward. So I, I know that you founded Bridgeline you know over fourteen years ago. So what do you think that really makes your organization unique or different? I mean, there are companies out there that are providing some of those things that you mentioned. So what's what's the unique part you know, that really that your clients would single out and really identify about you?
2: Well, I think any time you're starting a business, you really need to create differentiation. When we first started BridgeLine in 2000, for the first eight years of our existence. We were, we were a professional services company that were implementing other people's technologies and we really didn't have much differentiation, and that's a very difficult business model to scale. My partner and who our chief technology officer, Brett Zucker, we would talk often about our business model and the challenges we had. And we grew that services business to $20 million, and and we were successful driving very good gross margins, had great clients. But what a a bear of a business to scale, and you're chasing your next uh, deal every six to nine months and not a lot of recurring revenue or traction. So we really felt that we needed to create a differentiator and something that could really help us scale, and that's where the vision of IAPS came. And IAPS actually stands for Interactive Application iApps was trademarked long before the iPhone, so it really has nothing to do with the iPhone. It's all about interactive applications that run on the web. So I think a really big differentiator is the fact that we've taken these five very separate, disparate software categories that reside in the website world, or reside in the web store world and we unified them into one common framework and platform and we were a bit disruptive right it's a disruptive approach and something that nobody else has done before so it's it's helped us create a lot of success we've been able to scale our IS business since 2008 from zero to almost you know 25 million dollars in that in that period
1: it certainly sounds like the strategy and the you've had some great success in implementing those things uh, with your current company now and companies in the past so Maybe when we look a little bit deeper and you think about what the culture is in BridgeLine, you know, what ideas have you tried to instill that have helped you really maintain the culture and move the company forward?
2: You know, I love to refer to our people as intellectual athletes. Smart people love to work with smart people, and the average age at BridgeLine is 29 years old. We have an incredibly intelligent team, and I think, you know, we really Continue to try to drive and have you know super smart people and and I think the word athlete comes from not that you know, everybody has to be an, an ex athlete or a collegiate athlete, but just the term and understanding. You know, athletes typically hate to lose more than they like to win, so you you want to have that environment of people that really enjoy taking action, enjoy executing, enjoy winning. So I think we take a lot of time from an HR perspective to create that kind of culture, and then. I also believe in transparency. The more your people know, the better. A lot of entrepreneurs will keep things very held close to the vest, and I, I would really discourage against that. Everybody wants to help, right? Everybody wants to be a part of it, and the more you share with them of your successes and your failures, and you also make sure everybody's on the same page for the common goal of what you're trying to drive, it creates a phenomenal culture of awareness and can-do attitudes. So I think transparency is a really big key in, in any culture.
1: talked a little bit about you know the transparency part, but you know it sounds like being competitive, being intelligent are some real key factors. And then, of course, then to top down, you know, adding that transparency, you're giving everyone the ability to understand and know things. So is there anything else that it really takes to be successful within that culture you've created at your company?
2: I think you hear a lot of uh, the term fail fast. Mm-hmm. That's something I say a lot. You know, I think that's important that a business plan is just a, a road map. It's not on a paved road. It's it's on a dirt road. You know, it's a road map. And every year we go through our business planning process and you reset it. You're learning a lot. The markets change so fast. I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't even know who Facebook or Twitter was, right? The markets changed dramatically. And, you know, you got to fail fast and, and, and you got to, you know, continue to recalibrate. So I think that's a that's important. I mean, another you know, one of my clichés that I like to say a lot is, is people help support what they help create. So you really want to have an organization that has people that really are buying into and they're helping create your business plan and create your direction and giving you advice and being a part of that uh, plan. Because once you get your your employees and your customers, we even have a sales process that gets our customers buy-in too on our proposals. You know, I think once you get that buy-in and you get employees that take a part of the process of creating your plan – as well as your customers helping create your proposals, you know, that's a very powerful combination, right? Is people help support, they help create.
1: Well, and, and I imagine uh, without the sense of transparency and those things that you're talking about, failing fast could maybe be difficult for your company. If you have people that are competitive and they don't want to lose, you might have a difficult time letting something go or letting it fail quickly if you, know, you ultimately want it to be a success, but maybe it's just not the right fit. It's not the right thing. So it sounds like understanding the overall company goals and where the... Where things are headed, it would be really important to allow them that, maybe that knowledge or that perspective to know when it's time to let something go and, and, and to try something different, right?
2: Yeah, you know, it's, it's fail fast and learn from it and mitigate risk along the way. So uh, you're, you're not doing anything that's going to be majorly disruptive. You have to recognize what's working and what's not and the things that are working to, to grab onto and try to replicate. And, of course, the things that aren't, you know, put those off to the side and, and focus on the things that do work.
1: Right. I know throughout your career you kind of have a good proven track record of turning companies around or turning them into large profitable uh, scenarios. So what are some of the keys to success that you have that you've used? uh, Maybe it's been different for each of the organizations.
2: It is. um, It all depends on your scale. I tell a lot of entrepreneurial friends of mine that people will either outgrow a company or a company will outgrow people. And when you have a business that you're trying to build from zero to 100 million, or zero to 50 million, or zero to 25 million, there's a different type of person and a partner that you need to help you go from zero to 10 million. And there's a very different skill set needed to go from 10 million to 20 or 25 million, and a and once again, a very different skill set of going from 25 million to 50 million. And you really need to be aware of that. Probably one of my biggest issues is. I'm loyal to a fault. You know, anybody that gives me 110 percent and they're really trying to you know drive our business plan and, and working very, very hard towards our common initiatives, I'm very loyal to that. However, you have to always be able to separate are the individuals actually successful at what they're trying to achieve. And it, it, sometimes it's very difficult to separate that. I'm I'm at fault. I hang on to people probably a good six to nine months longer than I should, and give them that benefit of the doubt. And yeah, people outgrow companies, or companies outgrow people. And when you're when you're growing a business, that's critical that you're very aware of that at, diff, at every different stage of your scale.
1: I find a lot of similarities are kind of feel some empathy with what you're saying. I mean, uh, loyalty and you have someone who's working hard for you and doing those things and it can be those times when right, the situation outgrows one part or the other and you have to make those tough decisions. So, especially if your company's in a high growth mode. You know, one of the things I, I wondered if you might give us a little bit of perspective on, this is really not to point out any faults on your side, but certainly to give the listeners some perspective on how they might solve similar situations. And that is, you know, not every workplace is perfect. So maybe what are some of the common things that you hear, complaints or things that you have to deal with from employees while you're going through these, you know, high, high growth situations as you're really trying to really push your company to that next level? What are those things that your managers or you're having to deal with as those scenarios are unfolding?
2: Managing people is tough. You got to really be into it. You know, there's the business we have now, Bridgeline Digital is very people intensive. My last venture focus had a lot of manufacturing pieces to it where we had, you know, twenty five, thirty million dollars of components in a warehouse and, and guess what? Your your materials and your components never call in sick, they <laughs> they not complain. Right. And so when you have a model that has it's very people intensive, it, it is tough and because every person has a, a different need. I think with our business model, I think one of the biggest issues that I face is the fact that I have ten offices across the country. You know, it's easy for my Boston office, which is our largest, because that's where we're headquartered. We have, you know, a larger group. You have more morale. You have more camaraderie. You've got, you know, more of a common unit. My Atlanta office is my second largest office. But after that, you know, we have these other offices that are a lot smaller. And when we have smaller offices of anywhere from three to ten people in a location, it makes it challenging to create a culture. It makes it challenging to make them, you know, feel part of that vision. So... You know, we're trying to embrace more and more technologies that help us bring everybody together and feel like you know one common company. But the larger you get in scale, and you have a, um, a, a distributed system as far as your your operations, it, it could be very challenging. I think that's probably the biggest complaint we get is they don't feel part of the company's direction or mission as much as if as if they were in boston well people come to boston for training and onboarding and every quarter we do new training and and they say oh my god when i get here i'm so re-energized and it's so exciting and i could feel the vibe and but then they go back to their office in baltimore or in tampa or in san diego which are smaller regional offices and they they lose that that sense and uh, i think that's one of the challenges we face for sure
1: right so keeping that alignment of culture and keeping that that energy you talked about it that's got to be definitely something as a challenge as you have multiple locations even if they were you know just miles apart and these are more than miles apart if you've got them all over the country or in the world sounds like a big challenge you have to deal with but you know one of those ones that you that come along with success and come along with 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 being the type of corporation that you are
2: yeah you know and and we bring everybody we try to bring people together as much as possible but it you know it becomes cost prohibitive and you you try to do things with the technology that's out there whether it's go-to meetings and a lot of video conferencing and things like that, but it's still there's nothing better than that, that sense and that human touch. I, I remember taking an interpersonal communications class in college, and I remember a statistic uh, back in the day that you know 80% of your communication is nonverbal, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, there's so much more to body language and just being in the environment, right, that's going to help you uh, with that communication.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, you know, We talked about your industry, and it's certainly a highly competitive one. So what is it that you think really drives top talent to come to work for BridgeLine?
2: Smart people love to work with smart people. So I, I really, really believe that. And we obviously we go through a process and there's group interviews and you get to you know, meet other various members of very different, various different teams uh, when you go through the interview process. And when you meet other people, you realize how, wow, there's some really smart, passionate people here. So I, I, I think smart people combined with passion – will attract other smart people with passion. Probably one of our, our, our biggest attributes.
1: It can certainly be difficult to, to get the those types of people in the door, and once you do, then companies face that challenge of how do you continue to develop them, how do you fast-track those that have come in the door that are showing leadership potential and moving them into those right positions and really keeping individuals there at your company uh, from going on to other opportunities that's always going to happen to a certain extent, but you know you don't want to lose people if you don't have to. So are there things that you have in place uh, or particular ways in which you try to combat some of that?
2: You know, it comes down to the work, right? You know, I tell people all the time, I may work, you know, 70 to 80 hours a week consistently, but I'm the luckiest guy in the world because my family has their health and you know, I really never go to work, right? I mean, even though I'm working that many hours, I, I love what I do. So I think when you find somebody that, you know it's very important i ask people in the interview process all the time what do you love to do what's your passion what gets your juices flowing i remember an interview that steve jobs had that i saw he talked about how critical that passion piece is to it because when you think about what we do and the type of hours we work and we are plugged in you know 24 7 and even on vacation it's because we're into it we love it and and, and you basically there's a, a, a borderline of insanity, right? A lot of people look at it and say, well, you've got to be insane to do that. Well, he's right. You know, you, you, it's, it's a borderline there of that passion that you really, really love what you do. And so I think as a manager it's very important to find out what your people love to do because if you can get a super smart person into a role that they love, they're going to be great at it, right, because they're going to put that intelligence and that energy into it and they're just going to do a great job. And that's that's very important. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I think so. It's me. It's to avoid that turnover. The and in our industry is tough. The average uh, tenure of an employee in the internet industry is eighteen months. If you think about that, that's crazy, right? That's crazy. <laughs> I get I yeah I get a lot of pride. I get a lot of pride when I we give somebody a ten year pin and or a five year pin, and I we send out you know five year anniversary cards and. We get a slew of people about to hit their 10-year anniversary, and I think that's awesome when we, we see that kind of tenure here. And when I think about the industry as a whole and the, the turnover in 18 months is the average tenure, yeah. um, it's, it's hard to scale a business that way. So you've got to put a lot of focus on, on keeping um, that, that tenure probably more to like three years.
1: Mm-hmm. That is a pretty amazing statistic, both on the side that you've got people that are lasting that long and also that you're dealing with a, an industry of 18 months. It's just uh, phenomenal. So, before we run out of time, I want to make sure we ask one of our favorite questions, which is, what are you reading right now? And if you can tell us a little bit about that book. <laughs> it's a
2: book by a minister named Joel Olstein that's called uh, Breakout. I read a, a book that he had. He's a New York Times bestseller. Well, it's just two books, right, I want to mention. So, ne- Joel Olstein's a New York Times bestseller. He wrote a book called It's Your Time. And, you know, Joel's not your standard uh, preachy minister. He's all about just you know, positive thinking, positive reinforcement can do anything with that. With that thought process and how to take that into action, that's one book. And the next book that I, I, I actually just finished is by an author named Rory Vaden, and it's called "Take the Stairs." It's all about you know the whole thesis is. It starts off with a picture of uh, of a, I think it's a, a staircase and an escalator at Madison Square Garden, and. You got, I guess, 99% of us will take the escalator, and only 1% will take the stairs. And the bottom line is, there's no shortcut. No shortcuts to success. There's no get-rich schemes or take this drug and lose 30 pounds or do this, do that. It, you just got to have passion. You got to work hard. You got to, you know, keep your compass north and and do the right things. And and that's what take the stairs is all about. It's a great book. We actually give that book out now to every single brand new employee that joins Bridgeline.
1: Oh, that's great. So how can people uh, reach out to your company and learn more about Bridgeline Digital if they're interested?
2: Uh, a couple ways. One is um, bridgeline.com, the URL, and we're, we are hiring. Uh, we have positions open in just about all of our offices across the country. And the next way, if you can reach out to me anytime you want, it's uh, Thomas underscore Massey is my, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's my Twitter address. So reach out to us. We're, we're looking for uh, passionate, smart people to, to join the cause.
1: Well, Thomas, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the Town Talk Radio Show. It was a real pleasure having you, and hope you can come back at some point and give us an update on what you're doing with Bridgeline or whatever other uh, entrepreneurial thing you're, you're up to.
2: Chris, thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on the show.
1: Okay. Dr. Shirley Davis is coming up next after this quick commercial break. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of this show or listen to past shows by visiting octalkradio.net or talenttalkradio.com. You can subscribe to have it sent to you uh, each week. You can hear past shows, anything you want to do. So in the uh, I think we're coming up on our year anniversary here. I think maybe it's next month. We've already amassed a huge following on iTunes and Android, and we really appreciate your support. My next guest is Dr. Shirley Davis, President and CEO of SDS Global Enterprises. Don't forget to tweet your questions live right now for Dr. Shirley and by sending them to peopleg 2 and use that hashtag, all one word, talent talk. Dr. Shirley, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: So we refer to you as Dr. Shirley or Shirley or Dr. Davis, what would you prefer? Yeah, for the sake of this call, let's just call me Shirley, but I answer to all three. (laughs) All right. So, uh, Shirley, tell us a little bit about yourself and, of course, your company, SDS Global Enterprises.
3: I actually am a, um, a corporate executive. I've been in corporate America most of all of my career. The, the last eight years, I actually transitioned from corporate America into uh, the Society for Human Resource Management, which is the world's largest human resource association. So it's a nonprofit. it's a membership organization, but it's got over 275,000 members in 140 countries. So it is a very, very huge organization. And so I never even really felt like I was out of corporate America because they really do run like a business and they felt like a, a global organization. Part of my role as a 25-year veteran in human resource management, human capital, and what I call global workforce and talent management, over these last 20-something years, my role has really been to help organizations build strategies that will help them get great talent, get the best out of that great talent, and make sure that they keep it. And in today's world where the, you know, the workforce is much more globally diverse, is much more hyper-connected and certainly virtual, This is an opportunity for so many organizations to really leverage their talent and to make sure that that is their competitive advantage. But you've got to make sure that you're getting the right talent in the door in the first place and getting that talent in the right seat. So that's part of what I do now that I have exited out of corporate America and exited out of the Society for Human Resource Management into a full-time global thought leader, and NSDF, uh, global enterprises, which is what we do, I now have the opportunity to work with global leaders and corporations around the world on a consultative basis and doing keynotes and training and coaching and helping them to build those strategies that will be sustainable in the 21st
1: century. So now as a consultant and speaker and coach, you're helping businesses and organizations you know, strengthen their, their organizations. You're really kind of focusing around the same types of things. So what is different now that you're you're not bound with the, you know, kind of the confines of corporate structure that, you know, but you can kind of come to your organization, identify needs and help, help leadership to make it better. I mean, really what, what, what are some of the differences now that you're in this new role?
3: Obviously the difference is is that I don't have the constraints of the limit and the limitations of being just in a corporation or in, uh, inside of the company where they want you to really kind of focus on their strategies. And part of my role over the last eight years when I was working as a uh, global diversity and inclusion officer in human resources I did have the opportunity to travel around the world at least speaking 50 times a year working with organizations of all levels, shapes, sizes, industries, and sectors. What I now have an opportunity to do is to do it on my own terms to have a much more flexibility that uh, I didn't necessarily have there and, you know, to be able to do it, I think, even in more detail, whereas before I was acting more as a consultant going out on behalf of the organizations or the Corporations and speaking about their strategies, I can now speak about just global workforce trends and best practices and recent studies and knowing what some of those practices are that are, are tried and true and that have really worked in some of America's and some of the world's most admired organizations. So I enjoy that part of it. And, you know, now I can go in and get my, you know, sleeves uh, pulled up and get my hands dirty and spend time inside of organizations for a lengthier period of time that I, you know, wasn't able to do then. And then, too, the, I think just the relationship itself is different because I am not necessarily representing or speaking on behalf of one particular organization and, you know, having to carry their agenda. I can actually now be much more open and even flow with what the company needs and, um, and offer a very personalized touch.
1: Well, obviously, talent cultivation and management is an area that many companies find themselves really struggling with. So it sounds like it's something that you you can really help them with. But when a company wants to compete for top talent, kind of keeps losing out, what do you encourage them to focus on internally that would really put them in contention to hire the best people?
3: so important, and, and let me just sort of underpin that, well, you know, when I talk about some of these recent studies, one of the things that I really love to review is um, the, what a global CEO saying, and what's really keeping them up at night, and there's a number of studies that's out that's really revealing that talks about how much more talent is there, you know, is what's keeping them up at night, and it's their key to sustainable success, and so when you have these issues now with talent cultivation, really starting with talent acquisition, and so internally, you know, when you hear CEOs saying that, you know, we're losing people or we don't have enough of the right people with the right skill sets or some of the other competitors are stealing our talent and, and um, you know, attracting them to theirs, what you want to look at then is, first of all, your hiring practices. Are your hiring strategies such that you're attracting the right kind of people in the first place, but that you're making sure that you're hiring for not only the skills of today, but the skills of the future. And not only hiring for the right skills and the right qualifications, because that's important, but sometimes you just want to hire for potential. You want to hire people who've got the right motivation, who have the right intentions, the right level of integrity, and who are going to really invest in your organization to make your organization better not who may, you know, take a job for a year or so and then move on or really just does not have your best interest at heart. So your hiring practices are really key and critical that, one, you're getting the right talent in the door, two, that you're hiring for the right skills, and three, that you're making sure that you're hiring them for the right job and that they are the right fit for your organization. The other thing internally I have leaders look at is their culture in general. Because, you know, culture is so critical and important because there are so many things about your culture that you almost really can't explain it. You just experience it when you get there. And a lot of companies, in an effort of attracting great talent, will tell you a lot of things about what their culture is. But there's so much more beneath the surface or underneath that waterline, if you think of an iceberg, that you don't see until you get into the company. And if the culture is really toxic or if the culture is not flexible... Well, if you don't have a culture of inclusion, you're not going to keep that great talent that you spent so much time and effort going out to get. So that's another part. And, you know, there's a, a great thing, it was a great article out about culture, that culture fails because of inertia, inflexibility, and lack of innovation. It was an article that I read a while back in Fast Company. I thought it was just absolutely the, the perfect um, de- description of how important culture is. The other two things that I usually will have leaders focus on, too, is their leadership capability. How are they growing their leaders internally? Because leadership for the 21st century is very different than it was in the 20th century, and you really have to have leaders that understand different cultures, different backgrounds, how to deal with difference, because we've got so much more diversity in the workforce than we've ever had before, how to deal with change and, and lead in, in, in a time of disruption and in an era Of complexity and so leadership capability and building that from the inside of your organization is critically important And making sure that you've got bench strength those who can succeed those who are already at the top so building that bench strength at the mid-level leadership level and then having the right development and growth opportunities to ensure that you are providing ways that people can learn not only up the uh, corporate ladder but ways that they can learn and expand and grow across the organization and adopt new skills and be able to even uh, move laterally if that means also growing and developing uh, new opportunities. So those are just some of the things that you can do internally to really help uh, you know deal with that issue around talent cultivation and retention.
1: One of the things you, you mentioned there uh, was talking about you know, kind of how culture can fail, and I guess you use that that example of the iceberg. That the things that you see above the water, but there's certainly a lot more going on under the water that you don't ever see. That really is a lot more, a lot more of that that culture, that iceberg that that you mentioned. So, maybe what are some of the reasons you can identify that? You know, causes such a drastic shift in a cultural downturn. You mentioned a few things, but if we really looked at it a little deeper here, are there there specific things that you tend to see on a regular basis where, you know, that really cause those cultures to kind of take a turn for the worse or, or, or to not really be what everyone else thinks it's supposed to be?
3: Yeah, I mean, when you look at the definition, or at least the way that I define culture, it's a combination of attitudes, actions, beliefs, and your behaviors that you see perpetrated in the organization or you see that actually happen on a daily basis. You know, a strong culture is going to flourish when you've got a clear set of values and norms, and they're actively lived out. So that's, that's an important part of it as well. And employees are, when they're actively engaged and they're passionate and they're invested in the organization and they feel a sense of confidence and empowerment rather than feeling like there's a lot of distrust, there's a lot of bureaucracy in politics, then your culture is going to take a downturn. Very much like the other three things that I just mentioned, you know, culture fail because of inertia, first one. And that is because companies are not always willing to change and not always willing to take risk or, you know, and a lot of times they stay the same and they appreciate and value and live in the status quo because it's always worked that way, so why should we change it? But I'm a big believer that even if it's worked, doesn't mean that that's the way that it always should work and there may be some better ways to do it and more efficient ways to achieve the same thing that you've done for 20 or 30 years. The second thing that I talked about with with culture failing is inflexibility. And again, that might be inflexibility in your policy and flexibility in your processes, inconsistent ways that you administer your policies or you show favoritism or you uh, sometimes you cherry pick. Those are the kinds of things that can really undermine and sabotage a really good culture. And then the other thing is poor leadership, I think also poor execution, and lack of innovation. So, you know, we know that culture is shaped and reinforced by the leaders at the top those are the ones who are making decisions they're the ones that are implementing change and if you don't do it effectively and you don't have the right leaders in place to really champion that change and do it effectively, your culture is not going to be sustainable. It actually is going to take a downturn.
1: Now, you mentioned early on, I want to make sure the, the listeners caught it because you said it quickly, you mentioned a couple of things that you thought were really important about culture, and it was attitudes, actions, and then what, what were the rest of them?
3: Yeah, attitudes, actions, behaviors, and belief systems are what really make up a culture.
1: That's a great way. I mean, we've heard it lots of different ways. I think that's a pretty succinct way to to really look at it, uh, what's really happening within your organization. I think we think about those belief systems, and I think... We think about maybe attitudes, but the behaviors and actions are things that maybe are happening on a regular basis, on a daily basis, that are
3: exactly maybe clues. And again, they start with the top. And then, like I said, if you've got employees who really have a clear sense of direction and, and what the values are and what's the norm, and they're actively engaged in the organization, then you've got a strong culture. But when they're not clear on it and they're not saying leaders walk the talk and you're not saying consistency, that's where you're going to see a real breakdown and a disconnect in really understanding what a strong culture looks like.
1: You know, my next question was going to be how crucial you think employee engagement is in a company. And I'm going to guess you're going to say it's everything or, you know, you're going to give me a very strong, positive answer here. So maybe we should kind of tweak this question a little bit and say, what are some of the things that companies can do to really drive employee engagement?
3: I would definitely say that you have to have a high level of engagement, one, in order to drive a strong culture. Across the board, not only domestically here in the U.S., and or, and I should say even North America, but across the globe, I was looking at studies that, you know, the Gallup organization tracks employee engagement, Howard Watson tracks at McKinsey & Company, all of the major global consultancies track employee engagement, and there's a lot of conversation and a lot of focus on that, much, much, much than we've been focused on it in the past, and like I said, I've been in HR over 25 years, and, you know, we've done employee attitude surveys or pulse surveys and that kind of thing, but Employee engagement is at an all-time low. It's just—it's amazing. You—you you look at it in three different categories of those employees that are actively engaged. Research tells us that that's less than thirty percent. Right at about twenty-nine percent of employees across the U.S. and organizations report. Only 29% of them report that they are actively engaged. That means I want to go to work. I enjoy what I do. I'm talking, you know, talking about the company. I'm invested in the company's well-being, and I'm productive. Then you've got another cadre, uh, category of, disenga- of of excuse me, of engagement, and that's disengagement. 54% of employees around the country have reported that they are disengaged, and then the other 17% are actively disengaged. So when you look at that, wow, 70% overall, employees are actively disengaged or disengaged in their organizations, and that is absolutely startling. And you can imagine the impact that that has in organizations. And so your question to, you know, not only is it crucial, but how important is it, and and what can we do to drive engagement, there's a couple of drivers. And, you know, there's specific things like leadership. People want to make sure, or I should say engagement, is driven by employees saying that they want leaders that That walk the talk, that have a level of integrity, and that they are competent leaders who know how to build a business, who know how to execute, and know how to at least drive change in the organization and keep the company running and running well. So that's one driver. Another driver is flexibility. Employees around the country report that Flexibility, having work-life integration, having the ability to be able to enjoy their families, do some of the personal things that they enjoy as well as work, and not having the you know being overburdened and overstressed, and having a lot of um, a heavy workload where they can't do anything else but work. So that's a a second driver. The third driver is that they want challenging work and opportunities to grow, and they want to make sure that what they're doing is meaningful in the organization and that it's tied to the organization's goals and that they see that what they do on a daily basis is adding to the company's bottom line or to the company's profitability or sustainability. And then there's another one that you know I think is probably the most important, And that is my direct supervisor. Because what we know is that people don't leave organizations, they leave bad bosses. They leave toxic cultures. And so employees report that most of the reasons, most of the time the reasons that they leave is because of a bad boss. So those are just some of the drivers. And I know even in more recent research, even the Society for Human Resource Management recently reported that what's now starting to be a big driver of employee engagement given this global recession and recovery is money. Compensation didn't used to be at the, you know, at the top five of those key drivers of engagement, but it is now seeped up there, and it's become a greater interest and, and certainly a, um, a higher focus for more and more employees. So those are just some of the things that organizations can do, and those are the things that I work with leaders to build those kinds of strategies to ensure that they are helping to increase employee engagement. And, you know, I think the last thing I'll say about that was a recent article that was published in the um, CIO Insight of, um, of Fortune magazine, says that when you get this much lack of, a, of employee engagement, it can cost U.S. businesses over $350 billion annually. So it is an impact to the bottom line, and it's why so many more uh, CEOs and, and C-suite executives are really focusing on this.
1: With the amount of information you, you've really shared with us today and the things that you've talked about, I'm I'm going to guess that you're an avid reader. Uh, and that I,
3: yeah, I read all the time. <laughs> I'm
1: actually an avid social
3: media ninja as well, too. So I'm always on uh, on social media, reading articles, and I get a lot of um, tweets and stuff on specific issues around the global workforce.
1: So, is there a specific book you're reading right now that you might share uh, with the audience and, and tell us a little bit about it?
3: Ah. Yeah, well, there's actually, you know, I'm one of those who I like to read a couple of books all at the same time. There's one that I've been reading, too. It's called uh, Blue Ocean Strategy by Mm -hmm. W. Con Kim. Uh, That's a really good book on how to really create a market space and make, you know, your competition really irrelevant. How do you build your brand and and have the kind of strategy that's going to allow you to constantly be innovating, have that big picture uh, strategy, and then also have the built-in flexibility that you need in order to really be successful in a competitive global society. So that's one. The other one that I'm reading, too, is by uh, Dr. Van Moody. It's called The People Factor, and it's all about how to build great relationships and end bad ones and how to make, make sure that you're walking in your past passion, and in your purpose and not allowing the wrong kind of relationships in your life to derail your own success. So I love that. Uh and then I you know, I'm reading um another one called Speaking Globally and that's because I do a lot of Keynote speeches in different countries, and I'm always trying to make sure I stay abreast of what are some of the you know tricks of the trade and techniques that I need to make sure that I continue to develop and hone as a speaker. And then last, I'll plug my own, and that's because just this week, I got. Well, um, today is Monday, I should say. Last week, late last week, I um, really I published my first book. I turned my audio book, which is reinvent yourself, turned it into uh, an actual paperback book, and it is now available. So I've actually been reading through some of uh, the, my own chapters, but it's called Reinvent Yourself Strategies for Achieving Success in Every Area of Your Life. And I basically just took 20-something years of my experience in corporate America, having great mentors, having great executive coaches, observing a lot of the top C-suite executives, their behaviors, and what I've been hearing from other successful business leaders, I took all of those life coaching strategies and skills and put them into uh this book on how people can be successful in every area and it's not just about money, it's not just about having, you know, the big the best job, but it's also about personal success, financial success, having great success in your relationship. So those are the kinds of things that I'm reading. I read a lot of magazines, I read a lot of um articles online as well and then I watch, you know, CNN, I watch the news all the time, so
1: yeah, well, there's a lot of great uh, suggestions there you're giving the audience to think about. I, I, Thank you. I blue Ocean Strategy I've read. It's certainly a great book, and if you can find a way to apply those things to your business, that can really help. Uh, there's That's kind right. of those two different. Uh, you either believe that you're in a particular market and you have to differentiate your way yourself in a particular way, or you go to the blue Blue Ocean Strategy and try to. Create your own little uh, your own pocket there, if that's possible. So. Yeah,
3: what's the old saying? That go, don't go where the path may lead you, but go where there is no path and create your own. And that's, right. to me, like that blue ocean strategy. Do what's never been done before and make an impact on people's lives um, by use, utilizing the things that you can do and do very, very well and not necessarily what the masses are doing.
1: That's great advice. So if people are interested in uh, learning more about you or having you speak or work with them, you know what would be the best way for them to reach out?
3: Oh, absolutely. Reach out to me via my website at www.drshirleydavis.com. It's not doctor spelled all the way out. It's com. They can find me on any of the social media sites. I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. And I am on Facebook under the Success Doctor um, I'm on LinkedIn under Dr. Shirley Davis, so I am available. I'm open and um, looking forward to making new connections.
1: Shirley, thank you so much for being our guest today. You've been uh, very enlightening, and I'm sure everyone has picked up uh, some good tidbits they can uh, use in their own career, and their own uh, business or work right now. So great. We look, we look My for, pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, we look forward to having you maybe come back and give us an update on, on, on what you're doing down the road.
3: That sounds great. We'd love to do that. Thanks again. Have a great evening.
1: That's about all the time we have today. Thank you again to my guests, uh, Thomas Massey and Dr. Shirley Davis. Tune in next week at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to hear uh, uh, our next show. Looks like uh, we'll have Susan Phelan, founder and uh, president of Academy Women, and Gene Howard, the executive director of Orange County Alliance for Children and Families. So uh, until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.
0: You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2.